Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm out here with my producer, Phineas. What's going on, Phineas? Not much, Xander. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. So today we have Eliza Orleans on the show. She is running for Manhattan District Attorney. When is that race and what's the landscape of that race look like? Primaries in June. There's a lot of candidates. I think there's there's four clear candidates that are all considered like reformers. And so she's one of the four. She's the only public defender. And so public defenders, there's been a new trend of public defenders running to be the lead prosecutor. District attorneys are essentially the lead prosecutor. And so they've had some big wins in places like Philadelphia with Larry Krasner and San Francisco with Chesa Boudin. And so uh, there's something very attractive about people who come from that background, that public defense background, and then try to go straight to the source of the person who <laughs> governs these laws and, and try to change as many of them as they can to protect the same people that are traditionally their clients. One of the things that sticks out to me about Eliza is just how singular her focus is and her yeah. tenacity. I mean, she's yeah. just the way that she carries herself. You just get the sense that, I mean, she's what a public defender should be. I mean, she's fighting for the rights of people that can't fight for themselves. Isn't that exactly what you want in a DA? Right. It's, she's definitely, you can tell it's, you know, her motivation is pretty pure. She's seen a lot of horrific shit in her time, you know, being a public defender. You can't spend too much time in a public courtroom without just understanding immediately how unjust and uh, disgusting and punitive we are towards people experiencing poverty. And uh, you can just feel that from her. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, so like I said, there, there's there's some other good candidates in the race, some other reform oriented candidates that she's going to have to compete with. Uh, she has a few things going for her. She's really good with the press and with the public. Uh, she was formerly on Survivor, and so she has a level of celebrity that then helps her get endorsed by other celebrities and whatnot. So I already saw Alyssa Milano, you know, champion her on Twitter and. And that whole, you know, syndicate of folks. And so uh, she has that going for her. Being white and running as a reformer is not impossible. Larry Krasner and Chesa Boudin are both white. You know, we're living in a moment where a lot of progressive donors want to get behind a person of color. Yeah. And and that's also like a very worthy movement. Yeah. Uh, and so there's other people of color in the race that are competing as well. And so I think raising from the biggest donors in New York can be difficult. Uh, Tiffany Caban just ran a really great race, similar platform in Queens and just barely lost over there. So I went, and Tiffany raised a good deal of money and became a star in her own right. And so I wonder where that network of donors is going to go, who she's going to endorse. I think Tiffany Gavon will have a big role to play. Yeah, we've talked about district attorneys being critical in the system on the show before with a number of different guests. And it does seem like one of the things that comes up most frequently when it comes to the importance of local elections and how yeah. we move the needle in progressive politics. We talked about it. Obviously, we talked about it a lot during the Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd killing. Yeah. So it, it does seem like she is somebody that is a young person that's been energized by the environment over the last couple of years and is taking it upon herself to run for office, which I think is something we can always get behind. Yeah, I think I think more so even, you know, she was a public defender for I forget if it's 10 or 12 years. So it's pre this being popular. You know, and I, I think that matters. I think that matters that she made a choice to go do this work before it carried any sort of social credibility. And not long ago, it did the opposite. It's like you, you're defending 
these people, you know, that hurt someone or whatnot, right? We didn't have the same lens on who falls victim to our justice system and like the mechanisms of poverty and oppression that, you know, force people to commit crimes and whatnot. And so I think that does say something and that is meaningful. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for it. All right, let's get into it. What do most people not know about the power of district attorneys? I think the very first thing is just how powerful district attorneys are. DAs are the most powerful people in our criminal legal system. What's a source of that power that most people don't understand? Well, I think a lot of people don't recognize that it's not what you see on TV or in Law & Order. It's not really judges making decisions Every decision is really made by the district attorney, and that's from what someone gets charged with, sentence recommendations, bail, everything. So people see on television or in the media depicted, oh, well, the police arrest someone and charge them with a crime, and then the judge makes a decision based on X, Y, and Z. Right. But that's not really how it happens. How does it play out usually? So the police are the ones who make decisions regarding arrest, but all the police can do is walk someone to the front door of the courthouse, and then it's completely within the DA's discretion whether or not to charge the person, whether to dismiss the case entirely, whether to divert the person who's accused of a crime to a program or drug treatment or an alternative to incarceration. Right. And then once a decision is made as to whether or not someone gets charged, you know, everyone sees the judge making bail determinations, but the reality is it's almost impossible. I mean, it's very rare, I would say, for a judge to ask for, to like request bail, to set bail on someone if the local district attorney has not made a request for bail. So despite, you know, this presumption of innocence that you're innocent until proven guilty, the court usually just obliges by the prosecutor's request and orders someone to be held in on bail when the district attorney requests it. Because I know bail, cash bail specifically, has been such a source of incarceration in our country. And it's not, a district attorney has the power to eradicate cash bail altogether, correct? Exactly, exactly. And that is a huge, huge power. And what cash bail has done throughout history is really just incarcerate people who were too poor to buy their freedom. And it's you know, as Americans, we've really been sold this false choice between public safety and incarceration. But the reality is when we lock people up on cash bail, it does not make us safer. When someone's locked up for whether it be three months, three weeks, or even three days, it makes it exponentially more likely that that person is going to reoffend or get rearrested. The wildest, one of the wildest statistics I've seen as I got into justice reform was how people actually go to trial and how many take plea deals because of the bail that they can't afford and the implications of what they'll lose if they don't take the shorter sentence or get out immediately and take a probation or parole. And, and so many criminal records are built not off of guilt or innocence, but, but actually just a need to get back into the world and take care of your kids or keep your job and whatnot. Do you know what that percentage is? It's some incredible percentage. Don't go to trial. I think under 10% for sure. I think I usually say upwards of 90% of cases resolve, you know, without a trial. And so I don't know exactly what the percentages are, but result usually in a plea of some kind. And a lot of times it's, it is because of 
bail being set. Someone can't afford to, to pay bail. And so they sit in jail for months, weeks, you know, years right. and waiting for their day in court. And either the cases eventually get dismissed or end, they end up taking a plea to get to get out. They've done all the time required and they end up with longer prison sentences, you know, and it's really one that upholds this system that is really rigged in favor of those who are rich and powerful and against everyone else. And I've had clients held in on as little as just a couple hundred dollars bail who couldn't afford to buy their freedom. But, and as you said, they lose their jobs because they miss work. They can't afford to pay their rent. They lose their homes. They lose their children. If they're single parents, they lose their kids to foster care and more. And so cash bail just perpetuates this, this, the biased racist nature of the system anyhow. And the reason why money bail exists is to ensure someone's return to court. Right. But that's not how it's being used. It's it's just not. And it's a practice that just mistreats human beings who are not wealthy. And so so let's t- let's pull that lens back towards the district attorney and their power. Where are places or examples that you've seen? I know in you're running to end cash bail with your your bid for the Manhattan DA. Where are models where you've seen that work? Absolutely. You know, I mean Chase Boudin did that on his, you know, abolished cash bail on his first day in office. You know, Larry Krasner has pretty much done away with it. George Gascon, you know, took office and within two hours said, okay, here we go. Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office no longer requests money bail. And we know, we know based on the data that it doesn't actually change either the rate with which people come back to court. It doesn't change right. crime rates. You know, we, we, we have this fear because a lot of times you know, media, especially right-wing media, you know, places like the New York Post will, will fear-monger. And pre- people have probably heard of, you know, the Willie Horton effect, where one case of someone getting released and reoffending is used to fear-monger and say, oh my gosh, this is why right. we need to hold everyone in. But the, the reality is, what we are able to do when we don't set cash bail is keep people safer, you know, keep families together enable people to continue working, enable them to fight their cases while at liberty, which means they get better outcomes, which means they're able to maintain their innocence if they are in fact innocent, as opposed to just taking a plea because, oh, well, I just need to get out of jail. And justice, you know, for, for those who don't know, the justice system is so localized. Like you need folks like Eliza Orleans and Gascon in LA and Boudin in San Francisco, um, Krasner in Philadelphia. There's not a... Uh, an easy way to get federal the the federal legislation changed where there's no cash bail, correct? Like this this has to be done pretty much on the local elections by winning these DA races with folks who are excited about creating a more just system and eradicating things like cash bail. For sure, absolutely. And you know, it's not just the bail that's that's within the DA's control. You know, the DA decides what charges are brought. And legislatively, a lot of charges carry what's called mandatory minimums. And these are statutorily mandated sentences. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the mandatory minimums and the power of district attorney. What, what does that mean when they can change uh, sentencing for folks? What's the ripple effect there? So mandatory minimums are statutorily mandated sentences that cannot be reduced by a judge. So when a district attorney brings a certain charge, if the minimum is five years in prison, the DA can offer something less and basically use it as a tactic to extract a plea 
because the judge can't offer anything less than the five years. The judge has no autonomy. Even if he's like, look, this, this looks like a person that doesn't either need prison at all, or, you know, maybe needs a program. I, because of these mandatory minimums, I cannot give them anything less than five years. That is totally on the prosecutor's discretion. Correct. And mandatory minimums, you know, have been created to, to basically do away with any discussion around the unique circumstances that a human being is facing or unique circumstances around the offense. It's just a blanket rule that, that there's no getting around. And so prosecutors have really been able to use that to their advantage to extract pleas from people. The uh, district attorneys you, you named earlier, have those folks also eradicated mandatory minimums? Well, so the unfortunate thing about being district attorney, this is a power the DA doesn't have, is that you can't unilaterally end mandatory minimums okay. because that is something that would have to happen legislatively. But you can make charging decisions so that people won't get caught up in basically being overcharged for something and coercing a plea due to conduct that maybe you know they, they didn't actually participate in. For example, in a case like, oh, so like a bump up, we think of them as bump ups. If you, for example, shoplift from, let's say, a Sephora, mm-hmm. and they charge you with shoplifting, and they give you what's called a trespass notice, which means you cannot ever return to that Sephora. You can't return to Sephora because if you go back to Sephora, you are trespassing. And if you and that's a more serious crime. Well, and then if you commit a crime inside, it's technically a, a bump up. It becomes a burglary in the third degree, which is a, a class D felony. Wow. And so even if all you've done is shoplift in the same place you previously shoplifted, so really what the conduct is is, is misdemeanor conduct, you're, you're doing something that is all of a sudden trespassing with the intent to commit a crime inside. So it gets bumped up to a burglary in the third degree. And, and once it's a felony, that's when those mandatory minimums play a part. Yes. If you know, there are, there are a bunch of other things that come into play, but yes, in certain circumstances, then there are cases where then all of a sudden you face mandatory minimums, you face minimums, you know, of, of mandatory state prison time of years in state prison. You know, there are so many things. Whereas if you're charging something for the actual conduct that has occurred, you know, hopefully we would, we would not see that. What, what rule then would be put in place? Say, say you went district attorney in Manhattan 2021, you're putting a rule in place to end that. What, what can the district attorney do to, to stop that situation? Well, I think that there, so there are two situations we're talking about. One is overcharging. And I think that overcharging is completely unethical, especially when it's because the way it's been used has been to cause an outcome that the facts don't support. I think it's it's and it's immoral if it's done only to achieve a plea and to prevent, you know, someone who's accused of a crime from exercising their right to go to trial or their right to remain silent or their right to present a defense. And, you know, it's routinely used by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to strip my clients of their ability to exercise their rights or resolve their cases. And so, you know, I'm extremely concerned about this coercive plea bargaining practice. And and I think that the DA must stop. And as DA, I will stop charging, you know, the highest crime possible that could apply, even if a charge doesn't fit the facts, because this mm-hmm. increases the maximum penalty that a DA can threaten. And, and the DAs have the discretion to stop overcharging and stop coercive plea bargaining practices. Uh, the two things we spoke about so far, cash bail and then s- stopping overcharging and, and coercion, 
those seem that they will have an incredible decarcerative effect. Just those two things alone, what is your, you know, estimate or guesstimate onto, you know, prison populations, jail populations, et cetera, if uh, Manhattan's able to do jail, more, more so than prison in New York, uh, if Manhattan's able to do away with those things you're speaking of? Well, so the majority of people who are sitting in jail right now, and it's a large majority, I think it's close to three quarters, somewhere around 75% of the people who are sitting in jail right now are pretrial, meaning they should be being presumed innocent. 70%. I think it's closer to 75%. 75%. And these are people who are there presumed innocent. So you, you, you know, have not been proven guilty, have not taken a plea. They are innocent until proven guilty. And yet they are sitting in jail waiting to fight their charges because they cannot afford to buy their freedom. So you're saying eradicating cash bail Altogether, you're, you're dropping the jail population by maybe not 70, 75% fully because there's some people that will be held, but 65, 70% right off the bat. Oh, easily, easily. And then if you wow. think about the fact that the people who are serving city sentences, who are serving time on city cases are people who are being locked up for issues that are really substance use disorder, mm. mental health issues, poverty, um, homelessness. These things can all be addressed by other means. Right. We shouldn't be using incarceration for those things. And incarceration should really be a last resort. And so I think, you know, we can decrease the the jail population by 80%. I don't have an exact number, but like we really are able to do that by saying jail is not the answer to the problems that we're facing in society and we shouldn't be using our carceral system to address all of these issues. Which like really lands, when I said the power of district attorney, I, I think what I was, what I was getting at was the decarcerative power of the district attorney. You know, the DAs don't have to do this. There's a better way. And they're, instead of perpetuating these systemic problems, DAs can be in the best position to solve them. We should be thinking about alternatives to incarcer- incarceration. You know, jail and prison is not the solution. And so we, we have to elect DAs who are committed to this. You know, I, I want to decrease pretrial jail population by ending money bail and establishing a, a presumption of release. We should be decriminalizing poverty, decriminalizing youth, homelessness, addiction, mental illness, etc., and not criminally prosecuting low-level offenses. We just should, we have to decline to prosecute a whole host of things that just should not be handled by our criminal legal system. Well, I'm I'm certainly happy you exist. <laughs> You're out there and other folks like you exist in these other cities. Thank and, you. And there's been both a movement of folks on the inside like yourself that, that are trying to make it happen and culturally a movement and an understanding, as you mentioned at the top of this, that we're really punishing poverty we're, uh, and we're systemically oppressing people. This isn't about justice in our system. Long hasn't been about justice. And it feels like, you know, you were you were on this way before as a, you were a public defender before this for, for a long time. 12 years, you were a public defender? Yeah, over a decade. It's been 11, I think. But yeah, wow. it's wild. I know. But I think like all of the policies, all of the things that I that I'm fighting for, that I believe believe in that I want to see happen all come from my experience as a public defender and having represented over 3000 people charged with crimes and seeing the devastation that has been perpetrated on families and seeing seeing the real ways in which the DA has the power to make these changes and I think so much of it is also recognizing you know I think so many people are like well but what about serious crimes and what about when some you know someone's guilty and I think that that fails to recognize that 
you know, that, that people are worthy of redemption and that they're, that people make mistakes and make bad decisions and that we can really affect their lives in a positive way instead of just disposing of them and dehumanizing them and, and, and just, you know, setting them on a path where then their options are really closed totally. as opposed to the reverse. Totally. Yeah. I think there's maybe two steps culturally to this. One is like more folks em- embracing grace and second chances. And then, you know, where, where I've felt mostly is a responsibility culturally and socially of how we failed most of these individuals. Like you hear their stories and what they're up against. And it's almost silly to expect a different outcome. We're so tethered to this idea of individualism and free choice. And you sit with most folks that are, that are you know, being punished by this system. And you have to be lying to yourself if you think that you would have come out of this, you know, with, with their situation with any better outcomes. Right. Uh, m- most of the time, I've been amazed at what folks hadn't done and what I think I, I would have done given the same cards. For sure. And if I can, I, I'll tell a quick story if that's okay. That's totally because fine. Because I think like this this story really exemplifies like what I'm talking about and what I'm fighting for and why. A handful of years ago, I represented a young woman, Jessica. She was a teenager at the time because here in New York, we still prosecute children in adult criminal court. And she was charged with gun possession. She had kind of been dealing with some some struggles with her family and she wasn't street homeless but she was you know staying with her girlfriend with her grandmother you know kind of bouncing around and maybe not going to school and hanging out with a group of guys and one of them tossed her a gun and the police rolled up and saw her trying to shove it in her sleeve and caught her red-handed with a gun and she was charged with gun possession and you know I begged the DA's office to for an alternative to incarceration for something that wasn't just going to throw her in jail and they refused not it was just jail 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 and finally we started begging judges and finally we went in front of a judge who did show mercy and allowed Jessica to participate in an alternative to incarceration and kind of read us the riot act was like if you you know if anything happens you're you're going to jail but thankfully we found a program that was so well suited to her and every time she came back to court with her update letters they were just glowing reports about how she was excelling about how she became a mentor to other to other kids there and how she was attending even more than she was mandated and finally she came in one day like maybe a year and a half later with her certificate of completion and she was so proud and came up and the judge was like I see hundreds of cases every week and I don't remember all of them but this one really stuck with me and I'm so proud of you Jessica and Miss Orleans thank you for advocating and I was like no judge this is thanks to you like thank you for taking a chance and she was like no this is just so great anyhow about a year after that, I get a phone call from Jessica's girlfriend saying, hey, Eliza, like we just wanted to check in and uh, I wanted to ask you something. I'm like, oh my gosh, is everything okay? Like what's going on? And she's yeah. like, yeah, but Jessica's actually graduating high school and we have an extra ticket and it would mean so much if you would be there. And I was like, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Amazing. So of course I call the judge's chambers and I'm like, judge, like I, you know, I wanted to remind you of this case that we dealt with like now it's been three years. And she's right. like, I do remember. She's like, do you think they have an extra ticket for me? the judge wants to attend so it gets even better so the principal of the school hears that the judge is coming and that I'm coming and asks us both to speak at graduation oh my god so we get Jessica's permission what school is this where where are you at Manhattan Comprehensive High School amazing and so we end up speaking at graduation I mean I am like bawling 
as though my own kid is graduating from high school. Like it's like this beautiful thing. We like take all these pictures, flowers. Like my mom came up from DC so that she could be here for Jessica's <laughs> high school graduation. What a divergent path, right? The butterfly effect of that small grace that she was given. Has remained out of jail, not in trouble, you know, has remained, has gainfully employed, is currently engaged and is, I think I'm allowed to say this, is expecting a baby. They just did IVF and she's expecting a baby and she's like, you know, she's really excelling. And, and this was a case where she had been caught with a gun, with firearm possession and even with gun possession, like we shouldn't just be saying, okay, solely use punitive prison sentences. So I think that like, we need to think about ways of addressing things that are just beyond just carceral. And, and Jessica's case is just, I think, a great example of that because of like how much you can change someone's life by not just perpetuating incarceration. All right, I want to close these things out. I'm actually really excited for this. This is the first time we're doing this rapid fire. So I'm going to hit you with, it looks like seven to eight questions. Um, you can answer, it doesn't have to be like one word or anything. It could be a sentence or two. All right. What's the most impactful book you've read lately? Ooh, well, I haven't finished it yet, but it's actually sitting right next to me. Right on. What do we have? My friend Fred Joseph wrote The Black Friend on being a better white person. Okay. And it is a, it's a tough read. It's uncomfortable. It's, you know, it calls people out and it speaks directly to the reader. And he calls up, you know, race related anecdotes and and talks about different activists. and, And it's, he talks about, you know, his life as, as the token black kid. And it's, it's powerful and impactful. And I, I recommend it incredibly highly. What are you most excited to say you accomplished over the next couple of years? In December of 2022, we'll, we'll be celebrating the ending of my first year as Manhattan district attorney and the amount of change that I've been able to make, you know, thinking about the transformative changes, the decarceration, the safety, the investing in communities, like for a for an equitable and just Manhattan and I think within the first year we can make so many huge huge changes that will impact the lives of millions of people so that's that's definitely the thing small stuff small stuff <laughs> what habit most helps you do what you do I don't know if it's a habit but I think what I'm fueled by is rage at injustice mm. And I think that's what enables me to wake up every day and continue fighting because injustice exists and has for eternity. And and it's something that just I want to fight back against. So I think it's like a combination of rage and injustice and what somebody once somebody recently called me um, a relentless optimist. Mm. And so I think like you have to maintain hope and and optimism because you have to believe that things can get better that you can affect real change and so i think it's 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 a combination of those two things i think it's so common that people who exist in immoral or devastating spaces kind of gets used to the trauma at some point and stops fighting quite as hard or works within it to to the extent they can and stops thinking about eradicating it. Why do you think it has, you haven't been like, I guess, indoctrinated to a degree, not that you were ever like, you know, pro the system, but like not fighting completely within the system. Why, why do you think that rage has persisted for you? I don't know. I don't know how you ever get used to it. I don't know how you ever, you know, let your heart get hardened to the 
cruelty and injustices that are perpetrated every single day listening to human beings stories you know thousands of human beings stories and getting to know them and their families and and their circumstances and even the people i've represented who were accused of or had actually committed some of the most horrific crimes I still saw the humanity in them. I still sat across from them and looked them in the eye and heard their stories of the trauma that they've endured in their totally. lifetimes. And not to say that it excuses the behavior, but but it explains it. And you, you're like, wow, this is just systemic failure over systemic failure. And like this person was never given a chance. 100%. So I think like that's something that we can't let go of and that we have to make sure that the people who we are putting in positions of power, especially something as powerful as the DA, who's going to make decisions over people's lives, will never, ever, ever lose their sense of empathy. It's, it's interesting. Now you mention it. It's funny. I think like my sense of, you know, or my passion for justice reform, a lot of it comes, you know, or, or at least some of it comes from the fact that my father was murdered by someone we knew. And so that idea that he was like a boogeyman or evil just didn't land right it's like i knew the guy we, he was over at all my birthday parties and everything he was mentally ill and dealing with a drug addiction and you know and so like we never really wanted like a lot of harm to come to him in any in any way and you're right proximity to folks who have com- committed harm eradicates a lot of the ideas of, of bad guys that we have in our society and the need to hurt them and thanks for sh- always sharing your story because i think that it's been impactful to so many people to to hear you know, what you went through and, and everything about your story, because I think so many people think that retribution is the answer, that that, that right. will That's what I would improve want. the survivors or the victims, that, that things will be better if there's retribution. But the reality is that that's not how we make victims whole, like that that doesn't 100%. do anything that like, you know, we talk about this, like the anthropomorphization, like if you picture like the human version of the criminal legal system, like walking down a hill with you and someone runs up behind you and shoves you to the ground and you tumble down and you're laying there at the bottom, like bleeding and bloody and broken. You're like, please help. All the criminal legal system can do for you is chase down the person who did that to you and beat the shit out of them too. throw them down the hill. (laughs) It's like, and we're not, and then what, and then what now both people, it's like, you know, someone's like, Oh, help. My house was burned down. Okay, great. Let me go torch their house too. And you're still standing there staring at a pile of ashes. Right. It doesn't bring your house back. And not only that, but also like a lot of the things you need to recover and to actually um, move on are in uh, restorative justice practices. Like the closure is actually not in the beating of that person, but oftentimes in the conversations with that person and empathy for that person, understanding what happened to that person. And so it's not just not burning down their house, but oftentimes it's, you know, maybe rebuilding it together in some capacity. I know that makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable like, mm-hmm. thinking about that, but that's, that's oftentimes actually what moves the needle. All right, last big one, and then the floor is yours. If you saw, so the question is, if you solve X, what problem would you take on next? So say you win this district attorney race, you're able to institute a lot of the things that you want to institute. What's the next big challenge? Well, so I think a lot of the things that I want to do as district attorney are really intertwined with so many other issues that exist. So it's really like, it's not that we can just say, oh, it's all going to be solved because even ending you know, mass incarceration, like we still need to think about how we can strengthen communities, how how we can make sure that people have access to adequate housing and medical care and, and education and right. you know, guaranteeing 
people their the basic human needs how we can you know i mean i think like it's it's all so intertwined but but i do think that there are so many ways in which we need to address poverty in this country that we need to address mental health issues that we need to address substance use disorder that like it's more than just what a da can can do but hopefully it will all you know come together to kind of dismantle structural racism and systemic oppression that i mean that's what i gather from you from talking to you even before this and, and on this show the reason the district attorney role is so attractive is you do get to have an impact on so many issues whether it's drug addiction homelessness obviously the the, the racist motivations of our justice system as well and so yeah i think it, it, the exciting thing for me thinking about you in that seat is that you you get to start putting your fingerprints on on all of those things all right, before we leave, the floor is yours. Is there anything else you want to share? You know, I just would encourage people to get involved. We need all the help we can get. You know, taking on the status quo is really tough as a public defender my whole career. I know that our criminal legal system is rigged in favor of the rich and powerful and against everyone else. And I've spent every day of my career fighting against the Manhattan DA's office. And I recognize that even defeating Cy Vance is just the first step. Then the real work starts. And you know, just like in my job as a public defender, I recognize that there's no room for error when you're DA because lives are at stake. And to change the system, we have to change the DA, but that choice, we have to get that choice right. And if we want to make real and meaningful change, we need the next Manhattan DA to be someone who will fight, who brings a real sense of urgency and who understands what's at stake. And I will do that. And I, I really am ready to make these bold transformational changes. And I need everyone's help. So go to ElizaOrleans.com, you know, donate if you can. Every dollar matters. Um, and sign up to volunteer and get involved. And we would be so grateful for the support. All right, my friend. Keep it up, Mighty Warrior. I'm here to help in whatever way uh, you need it. And uh, sending you love from out here in Vegas. Hopefully I'll be back in New York with you and the crew sometime soon. I hope so. I miss you. Thank you. All right. I'll talk soon. Okay, talk soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social we're WWDKPod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care. <laughs>